Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for July 18th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope you all had a good weekend and that everyone's staying cool. I mean, it's, it's really hot out there, especially today. I had a men's league hockey game Sunday night, and it even felt muggy on the ice. So if you're working outside, be careful, drink lots of water, take breaks in the shade. You all know the drill by now. But anyways, a lot of news to get to to start your week. Here are the headlines impacting our state right now. New details are coming in about a tragic helicopter crash where four people were killed. The Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office says Under Sheriff Larry Corrin, Lieutenant Fred Beers, Deputy Michael Levison, and County Fire and Rescue Department Specialist Matthew King died in the crash Saturday night. The Sheriff's Office says the helicopter and its crew had been assisting with a wildfire in the Las Vegas area, giving bucket drops and other air support to fire crews on the ground. At this point, we don't know why the helicopter crashed or how, but it will be investigated by the FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board. A new committee tasked with finding ways to improve the state children, youth, and families department is not allowing the public inside its meetings. According to a report from the Albuquerque Journal, CYFD officials say the meeting of the Enhancing Delivery and Services Steering Committee, scheduled for Wednesday in Santa Fe, this past Wednesday, was not open to the public. The journal says their reporters were also denied a Zoom link to attend virtually. The committee was formed after CYFD secretary, Barbara Vigil, ordered an outside review of the agency's response to serious situations like child fatalities. KRQE reports an Albuquerque law firm is preparing to sue the department for violations of the Open Meetings Act. I called the public information officer for the department to ask about that. He then spoke with the office's general counsel. I was told that in their opinion, this particular committee is not subject to the Open Meetings Act because it is not a decision-making body. It's purely advisory. The department cited a previous opinion from the attorney general that supports that claim, so stay tuned for how this plays out. Navajo Nation leaders have decided how they want to spend more than a billion dollars in federal pandemic relief money. Friday, Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez signed an agreement from the Navajo Nation Council to use that money to improve infrastructure for water, electricity, high-speed internet, and housing. Some of the money will also go towards controlling COVID-19 and specialized hardship assistance for projects and people, individuals across the reservation. More money from the Land Bank Permanent Fund would go towards education if a new ballot initiative passes in November. That money would go towards early childhood education, helping struggling students, extending the school year, and teacher compensation. The All Pueblo Council of Governors says it supports the plan, saying it has a specific strategy for the money if it's approved. The group says its goal is to send money directly to tribal education departments so they can reform local schools more efficiently. We're going to hear from the Line Opinion panel. They're going to dive into this in the last segment of the podcast today. Newly published research shows 2021's record-breaking heat wave in the Southwest contributed to historic drought conditions, and vice versa. Scientists involved in the study say this proves a connection between the two types of climate incidents, proving that heat waves contribute to droughts and droughts contribute to heat waves, more so than if each one existed by itself. That may seem obvious, but it's something that had been largely hypothetical to this point. Now that study on drought and heat waves I just mentioned was published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. On Friday's show, Gene and our line opinion panel talked through what this means for us here in New Mexico, where we obviously see this 
the impacts of both of these things firsthand. They also talked through how a recent Supreme Court decision limiting EPA authority plays into this. Our panelists are attorney Sophie Martin, public health consultant and the former president of the American Public Health Association, Michael Byrd, and Merritt Allen from Vox Optima Public Relations. Let's bring the line opinion panel back in to talk through this one. These scientists say this is the first evidence of something that had been hypothetical to this point. And Michael, would this spark more focus towards climate change and climate action? I mean, it, it, it seems easy to grasp what these folks are trying to tell us here. Will that, will that land in folks' minds in, in a way that we need to make some serious change here? Um, all I can say is one would hope so. Yeah, I hear that. Um, because, you know, th this is a manifestation of something we've never seen. And, and, uh, and they pointed out the fact that the, the number of deaths in the Southwest in 2021 were significantly yes. increased. And, and it's something, again, it's something, you know, we, we've, we've seen droughts and, and they tend to, as they referenced, they tend to be slow in forming, but these flash, these flash, uh, as they've re referenced flash droughts mm -hmm. that come on fast and are extremely uh, hotter and more deadly. There, there's there's uh, there's an intersection between those you know well first of all all things are all things are connected in terms of people and the environment and nature and temperatures mm -hmm. and if we think we're having issues here uh, one needs to just look at what's go happening globally as well in terms of Africa and many other countries even European countries where the temperatures are rising significantly that's right so we're we're all we're all a part of that. We're all the 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 global the global um, environment is 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 interconnected and interrelated. So anything that happens someplace else does impact us. That's what right. we do impacts other parts. So I mean, I mean, it's 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 what we need to know. The question, as you've referenced, are we going to be motivated? to action are we actually going to do something mm -hmm. and with with the decision that the supreme court just made impacting epa um, and their ability to regulate what is going on um you know that 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 doesn't help this and that doesn't help mm -hmm. us sophie let me ask you to pick up that point in the supreme court decision yeah. that surprised a lot of folks uh moving to limit the power of of the EPA, as Michael mentioned, and other regulatory agencies, I should throw that in there too. Th this opens the door for higher pollution rates, which contribute to climate change. What's your reaction to that ruling? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it does. It, it does some very strange things mm -hmm. to our, um, in, to regulations, not just the environmental arena. I mean, this, this particular decision was focused on the EPA and Environmental right. Clean Water Act, et cetera, Clean Air Act, pardon me. Um, but, but you know, what does the court signal? I think that that as we read the tea leaves, it signals that there will be other um, regulatory bodies who may not, who also may not have the kind of direction from Congress that the Supreme Court is now indicating it wants mm -hmm. um, to do their jobs and, and, you know, other agencies that we really rely on. One of the things that's tough right now, and I think this reflects the sort of, I'd say, the big C conservatism of the current court is that in our current legislative, you know, with our, our essentially deadlock, more or less in the Senate, um, with the filibuster, et cetera, U.S. Senate, um, 
the ability of Congress to come back and say, yeah, by enacting these pieces of legislation, by saying, EPA, we want you to do these things, other regulatory agencies, we want you to do these things, we mean, we want explicitly, right, the things that the court has, has called into question. In a deadlocked situation like we see right now in Congress, can those changes be made? I doubt it. Mm -hmm. it. It certainly could be very difficult, despite the fact that that these acts typically, you know, come with bipartisan support. Historically, that's not the case today. And so, so what the the court has essentially put in place is you have to make these changes in a context in which we may not be able to make those changes. Mm -hmm. Interesting point there, and Merritt, I'll, I'll remind this sort of hitched, not sort of, it hitched around the agency's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah. think about it from what Sophie just said, it, you know, if the Congress <laughs> is going to have to green light whether these folks can actually issue caps or not, that's going to be a difficulty, it would seem to me, because legal analysts have been pouring over the controversial decision from the court you know, regardless of political or social ideology, it's clear the conservative majority is putting the onus on Congress to find legislative solutions to these issues. Do you agree with that stance? Just right there, that first things first? Well, I, I think politicizing science is always a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. And I, I really would encourage um, climate deniers in my party to take the emotion out of it and just look at it from a very realistic and pragmatic point of view. The climate on this planet has always been changing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there have been ice ages, there have been warming trends, there have been great droughts in the Southwest. I mean, uh, some of the larger uh, cult previous cultures collapsed because of climate change. Mm -hmm. Climate change is a real scientific proven thing. That's right. And then if you look at the environment today, where we uh, the war in Ukraine is really upsetting, upsetting global grain markets. The Russians are stealing Ukrainian grain mm -hmm. and smuggle, smuggling it out, selling it to uh, Syria. That puts our farmers, that puts US farmers at great risk, trying to figure out how much to plant, what to plant. They bought it at higher prices because they thought they were gonna be able to sell it at higher prices. Well, if you know the Russians dump a lot of grain, these are all pragmatic realistic business situations then if we have a catastrophic weather event because of climate change which is a real scientific thing mm -hmm. we have a problem so you know take your knee-jerk emotional reaction out of it and look at it pragmatically mm -hmm. this is what we this is what we need to do and so to expect Congress to do anything I mean just look at the, for five decades trying to get something done about immigration that's not going to happen. Good point. So are they going to do something about environmental regulation? I think not. They need to do act quickly on cybersecurity. That ain't going to happen. So no, I think that was, um, uh, again, judicial activism that uh, we really certainly did not need at this point in time. Yep. Michael, I want to circle back to something that Sophie mentioned, because when you really think about it, you know, the changing role of all the regulatory agencies as a whole in this country are kind of be up against it here because if you're going to have to go find three or four or five friendlies in Congress to lobby for you, what, what are you as a regulatory agency at that point? You're supposed to be outside of that whole mess. You're not supposed to be lobbying Congress people to, because to, that's what it's going to come down to when you really think about it. A lot of backroom dealing, a lot of backroom conversations. Am I off on this? I mean, I, I can't see it going any other way. Well, one of the other agencies that's referenced in, mm -hmm. in, in this action 
is CDC. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, right. <laughs> we're not we're not done with COVID. People may not be wearing their masks, and some and as as somebody who is a public health professional and just coming off of some seven weeks uh, uh, with a new with an experience with the new COVID variant, let me tell you. I mean, I didn't have to go to the hospital, but um, I wouldn't want anybody I know to ever have to go through that experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you hamstring these agencies that, that were established, have been established, longstanding history of, 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 of protecting and, and responding to emergencies of, of, of various kinds, and, and, and now we're going to have, you know, now we're looking at the Supreme Court to, to provide guidance, or we're looking at the national legislature, you know, the Congress. I think, you know, <laughs> we're kind of in a di downward spiral if, we're, if, if we don't allow those agencies that were established to protect us all to function. Mm -hmm. Why are we muddying the separation of powers? Thank you. And why does this court not sort of follow its own kind of established ideology, which is what was the intention at the time of the legislation? That's right. I mean, that's the conservative, that's the historical conservative stance. And if the intent at the time of the legislation was that this was enough, then why is it not still enough? That's a good point there. So for oh, we've got the big questions happening. That's right. Hey, Sophie, real quick, just I, I, I got to get this in. We know New Mexico, yeah. other southwest states are disproportionately feeling impacts of climate change. Where do we fit into this conversation on the national scale? Are we going to have to get together with Texas, Arizona, Nevada, and put on some kind of front here? Hey, let me throw California into that list of course. because California mm -hmm. has so much market power. And I think I think what we're going to be looking at, at least in the near term, and the near term is probably pretty long, mm -hmm. is um, state and local action to try to combat uh, climate change and take care of these other issues. And California, as we know, is the 800-pound gorilla there. New Mexico is fortunate that I would say that our environmental goals very much are in alignment with California's. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we're a small state with relatively little power, um, you know, it, legislatively in the, in the Congress, but um, working with uh, the other states that share our goals and our interests, mm -hmm. um, I think can, can lend us a larger voice. You can, you can feel it happening already. Merritt knows about this well. You know, there are folks in the business of coalescing people together to make groups and associations to put a united front on. You can see a whole new wave of that coming when it comes to this, with this decision. Thanks to Gene and the panel for that conversation. We're going to hear from them again before the end of the podcast when they talk about that ballot initiative I mentioned uh, that would increase uh, school funding, the money that would come out of the permanent fund and go into school funding. Uh, but first, a conversation on guns. Here in New Mexico, almost 60% of homes have at least one gun. Some of those are for hunting, personal security, people have them for all different reasons, but regardless of why, gun ownership has become an even more polarizing issue in the last few months as we've seen a string of recent mass shootings. That includes a massacre of more than a dozen children in Uvalde, Texas, and most recently Sunday, four people were killed at an Indiana mall. It seems like too often when we have feedback on this, we're hearing perspectives from people on the extremes of the conversation. We don't get anywhere. But our land executive producer, Laura Paskus, found someone with a unique outlook. 
On Friday's show, Laura spoke with a New Mexico sportsman and gun owner who says in order to make any progress on this issue, gun owners like him need to push back against rhetoric from lobbying groups like the National Rifle Association. Hi, Garrett. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I know you are a sportsman. We've talked many times over the years about hunting and fishing issues. I'd like to talk today about the role that guns have played in your life. Yeah, I mean, my grandfather was a big hunter and uh, I inherited his guns and my father was a World War II vet. Uh, he liberated Buchenwald and Dachau and was a very serious hunter and very passionate hunter and he passed away and I have his guns. And so I was raised in a family of guns and it was a big part of my life and, and still is in many ways a big part of my life. I'm a, still a big hunter and feed my family with elk and deer and other game meat and uh, yeah so it's 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 part of who I am for sure. Yeah and you recently wrote an op-ed titled Gun Owners Must Speak Up. Yeah. What's going on there? So you know I, I think um, I, I had an epiphany in that if this conversation is going to change and we're going to have real substantive reform that gun owners are going to have to be the ones who are speaking up uh, in favor of gun reform. And um, I think the recent events especially were especially horrifying and troubling. And, and I, the epiphany that I had was that I as a gun owner was complicit in the bloodshed uh, by being silent and I felt as though it's really my job as a community member to speak up and say wait a minute I own guns but we need to really have some major changes guns are too easy to get there's too many of them and there is a mania out there of gun use and gun culture that needs to change and the NRA of course is is one of the biggest complicit uh, members of this conversation and so much bloodshed is responsible uh, it's on their hands but also Walmart also Cabela's also Sportsman's Warehouse also every single gun shop uh, but also every single gun owner and uh, it's important as a family member as a community member uh, for me to say I'm all in on gun reform yeah in that op-ed, you wrote that the National Rifle Association has done an incredible job gaslighting gun owners like me with its polished propaganda. What do you mean by that? Ever since I was a little boy, you know, my dad was an NRA member and we had the, the NRA magazines on all of our tables. And of course, I consumed that as a little boy. Uh, and their propaganda is uh, very uh, polished and, and very passionate. Their imagery is very passionate. You know, the Charlton Heston holding up the gun from my, you know, dead hands or whatever he said. So I was a, a victim of that, you know, propaganda and gaslighting as a young boy and believed, you know, the Second Amendment, uh, you know, no way, no, you know, no compromise, no give. Um, but it was all a bunch of, excuse my French, bull yeah. it really is. And it's... Um, it's false. Their narrative is false. Their narrative about the Second Amendment is not true. Um, none of it is. It's about promoting gun sales, which is a multi-billion dollar industry in the U.S. And it's about shareholder money, and that's what it's about. And they use sportsmen uh, as also as their voice, and I'm not going to be part of that. I will not be complicit in that. So. 
Yeah, getting ready for this interview, I was doing a little bit of research on um, just how big business um, guns are in America and looking at uh, PBS NewsHour analysis in 2020 U.S. gun manufacturers made 11.1 million firearms and that's almost double what they made 10 years earlier yeah. and it's just a small number of companies fewer than 10 companies control the vast majority of the market for pistols and rifles um, and in the, uh, this analysis also talked about how there's been a shift in how guns are marketed and more toward, um, you know, kind of fear-based, home security, yep. self-defense. And they posited that um, that shift in marketing has been linked to a decline in recreational use. I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on that and what you've seen in New Mexico. Yeah, it makes sense. I was in Cabela's actually a couple days ago and I walked in and there was a black gun coffee company stand right in the entryway and their label is an AK on their coffee. And so that labeling and that, that uh, marketing and that imagery now is everywhere throughout uh, sporting goods stores and t-shirts and, and everything. And so it's a, it's a cultural icon uh, and it's, it's crazy the way that it's been uh, marketed and perceived and twisted. Um, also like this whole you know, connection to patriotism. Uh, you know, being patriotic is being community-minded, right? It's about taking care of issues that affect our families and our, and our homes and our communities. That's what patriotism is. It's not about me, mine, um, you know, over my dead body sort of thing. I don't know when we started thinking that way as a country, but it's really dangerous stuff. Yeah. So. I'm curious if you have a sense of or understand why as Americans, and particularly it seems like American men, are so susceptible to that messaging. Well, I mean, if there was ever a, a definition of toxic masculinity, you know, the, the, the long gun with the you know, tactical weapon, with the, with the military attire, uh, it, it's about, you know, identifying and, and empowerment. These, these are symbols of empowerment. I, I, I was reading somewhere, one of the gun companies, I think it was Daniel Defense who, who produced the gun that was in the Uvalde uh, shooting. Uh, they have a man card that goes with your purchase. And so it is about masculinity, uh, identifying with masculinity. It's really interesting. Um, the most insecure men I have met are the men, I was out in uh, Malheur with the Bundy standoff, and uh, it's insecure men hiding behind these powerful tools. Um, and there's obviously lots of great gun owners, but we don't need to wear a gun on our hip to, to feel secure, right? Um, and, and they've really, the gun manufacturers and the NRA have really played off of that. And now they're doing it with women, right? They're making pink guns and, uh, you know, it's really very sophisticated marketing. Um, but I think that oftentimes insecure men are real susceptible to this because it makes them feel empowered. And um, it's, it's kind of sad, actually. Yeah, and it's such a divisive issue. So I'm curious, as a gun owner, um, you know, where do we go in terms of gun reform? What do we really need to do in, the, in this country right now? Well, we need to make it hard to buy a gun. 
And, you know, it's interesting, a lot of the gun reform that's being proposed doesn't affect your Second Amendment rights at all. You can still bear your arms. It's just a little bit more difficult to buy that 15th gun, right? And um, I think that we need to make guns difficult to purchase. All guns, not just long guns, not just tactical, uh, you know, military-style guns, but all guns need to be difficult to buy. And um, that, I'm okay with that, right? Like, you should have to prove that you're uh, able to handle this very dangerous tool. You have to do it with a car. You have to do it with prescription drugs. You have to do it with everything else. But why, why not guns, right? Um, it doesn't make any sense. And the reproductive issue is the same thing. There's, there's so many loopholes and, and stop gaps, but we don't have that for guns. And that makes no sense. There needs to be a level playing field. And so, you know, I think the, the mandatory background checks make a ton of sense. There's some quick and simple things that we can do. I think this new federal legislation, of course, it's not uh, it's not so substantive, but it's a great start. It's it's a it's a turning point, and so um, I, I would like to see a mandatory in-person gun safety class for first-time gun buyers. Mm -hmm. You have to prove that you know how to safely handle a gun, and I think that that would also vet uh, people that shouldn't own guns, mentally unstable people as well. So those are common sense things that I think. Uh, and it's amazing, virtually all of my friends who own guns agree with me. I, I don't know a single gun owner who doesn't think this is a good idea because their families are threatened, their communities are threatened, because this could happen anywhere at any time and it happens every single day. Uh, I don't know any gun owners who don't think that common sense gun reform is a good thing. Right. So. Well, thanks for talking with me about this, Garrett. Yeah, it's a really important issue and I, Again, I appeal to gun owners all out there to walk away from the NRA, talk to your congressional delegates and, and county commissioners and leadership, and urge them to support all this. It's the safety of our community depends upon it. So. Right. Well, thank you. Back to that new ballot initiative coming up in November. If passed, it would increase the amount of money from the land bank permanent fund that goes towards education. Tribal leaders have backed the plan, but is this the proper avenue to make those changes by ballot initiative? Gene puts that question to our line opinion panel. Welcome back to our line opinion panel. The initiative would increase its permanent fund distribution by 1.25%, with that money going toward early childhood ed education and an increase of funding for K through 12 schools. We have the money. Let's just start there. Wait, Sophie, is this an area to take advantage? You know, I'm having the sense of deja vu. I feel like we talked about this a couple of months ago on this show. And, mm -hmm. I, and I do still think, you know, given where our school systems are, educational programs are nationwide, and what we know on a local level about the education that our kids are receiving, and of course this is no smack against teachers, mm -hmm. um, that, that seems clear to me that more funding is needed, and in particular, more funding that is directed toward the communities that participate in the Yazi Martinez um, Supreme Court case. You mm -hmm. know, that this, this is part of our state's obligation to uh, tribal communities and others. So I, I, it seems to me, my hope is that the, that the electorate will say yes to this one. Mm -hmm. Hey, Michael, I want to read some of the specific language from the initiative 
um, which states the extra money would go towards, quote, enhanced instruction for students at risk of failure, extending the school year, teacher compensation, and early childhood education. Um, but we're talking about at least 125 million in pre-K and up to 75 million in K through 12 programs each year. That's a lot of money. And you know, how do you, again, we're going to the voters on this. Is this something that the voters would support in your early take on this? Well, I don't know if the voters will support it or not. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's important that it, that I'm, I'm glad it's being proposed. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, and of course, accountability, I think isn't, is, is, would be one of my concerns, but I, I guess the, the thing I would say is that, um, um, the populations that, that would be impacted and are, are referenced in terms of the, the, the Yazi Martinez case. Um, and when you look when, and, and this is based on my, my lived experience here in New Mexico and, and everything that I've done in terms of public health and, and New Mexico, in terms of poverty rates, you know, in, in terms of all the negative measures, social economic measures in New Mexico, Indians consistently come out at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's no accident. I mean, it, 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 it's not just it's not because we're inferior genetically. It's not because we're lazy. It's not because we we're not committed because you see you see those of us who've had who who've been provided the opportunity and seize the opportunity can compete. Um, and and, and, there, and racism still is a very real thing here in New Mexico, as well as the rest of the nation. Mm -hmm. It, it, I, I, I won't go into that, but, um, so, you know, if you really, and, and the fact of the matter, New Mexico's, <laughs> I, I will say this, New Mexico's economy historically has been predicated on Indians and native art, culture, archeology, span right. history, and, 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 and so much of new, and people don't realize that they don't see that because they're not connected to it and they don't know the history of this, mm -hmm. of New Mexico. But if they did, I think many people would have more of a sense of a, and a sense of appreciation of that, of what native people have contributed in terms of land, art, culture, archeology, span history, the, the base for New Mexico, significant part of the base of New Mexico, which also is related to the economy, has to do with native people. Mm -hmm. Have native people benefited it, it's hard to see it in my, for it, from my lens, in yep. my, from my view. Yep. And unless we begin to invest in, in Native children and in Native programming, um, nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this. That's an ex excellent, excellent point to add, so I can get to this question. The All Public Council of Governors, as you know, supports the plan. The, and the group says it has a specific strategy for the money if it's approved. And it would be potentially a much more efficient way that mentioned what Sophie mentioned to address the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit because the group says its goal is to direct funds to tribal education departments they say can reform local schools efficiently. That sounds pretty good, actually. Um, I'm interested in your well, thoughts on can, that. It can happen. Mm -hmm. I, I was part of, for my own tribe, help create the Kiwa Pueblo Health Center uh, for Santa Domingo Pueblo a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. We were getting federal funding from I, services through IHS. We went 638 self and took over the facility, expanded on the facility, expanded revenue, expanded services, 
and and totally changed this the nature and quality of services that were available to Kiwa Pueblo as well as surrounding Pueblos because it's a major health center located on the reservation. Mm -hmm. And when you see what IHS was providing and what's not being provided now, it's it's altered and changed um, the quality and nature of healthcare being available to Kiwa Pueblo as, other, as well as other Pueblos. And other tribes have exercised that under Public Law 93-638, Indian Self-Determination. This seems to me to be a, sort of a version of that mm -hmm. so that the tribes now can can do things in the way that they choose to, mm -hmm. as opposed to having to go to the federal government, as opposed to having programs that go through the state. Much of the CDC funding, I don't know if it's still the case now, but in the past, much of the native populations would be part of the the population that would would that the state would go forward for federal fundings to CDC and other agencies. We would be counted, but when those funds came to the state, it very little or nothing ever got to the tribes. That's a good point. Yep, exactly right there. Mm -hmm. uh, Merritt, interesting, we've been waiting on action as we're talking about this uh, on the Yazzie Martini lawsuit for years now. And now, if you think about it, a potential solution is in the hands of the voters. Is that the proper avenue for this? Or should the no. legislature step up and take action on this? Uh, this is absolutely not the way to, the way to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. The legislature should step up. PED should step up. Mm -hmm. um, this is uh, a way to pass the buck uh, to the voters with money uh, that comes from someplace else. Uh, first of all, the majority of this goes to early childhood. We have an early childhood investment fund already that's making more money than anybody ever thought was going to happen. That's a lot of money. What happened to that? That's right. Um, and I, I would go to uh, Michael's point about accountability. Um, there's not enough in the ballot initiative to really put any teeth in it where it's going to go. If it's allocated by school district, APS is going to get most of it. APS has shown it can't deliver a budget that can pass board scrutiny, much less granularity public would accept in a vote, voter initiative. I think it's, uh, I think the goals are absolutely appropriate. Mm -hmm. I think um, the mechanism is not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, you heard earlier, Merritt, you know, I mentioned the four little bullet points that the administration wants to address. But I have to say, again, we're talking about uh, 200 million a year. I mean, which is great. Don't get me wrong here. This is really quite wonderful. How does one spend that amount of money? That is a tremendous amount of money. What happens to teachers? In an accountable way. And mm -hmm. where has PED been this whole time? Where's the legislature been yeah. this whole time? Um, I, I just, uh, I think this is uh, passing the buck in a way without putting a lot of thought into it mm -hmm. and just finding a new pot of money and putting it on the voters to come up with it. I, I don't like this at all. Mm -hmm. uh, Sophie, the previously mentioned PED, State Public Education Department, released its draft plan, as you know, to address the Yazzie Martini lawsuit earlier this year. But public comments kind of slipped by. They ended June 17th. Does this ballot initiative change that plan at all in your view? I think it I think it remains to be seen. I mean, okay. uh, you know, there was some commentary at the time that maybe the PED plan didn't go far enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, will they view this as an opportunity for sort of a multiplicative effect or or, you know, it, I think it's just going to depend on the outcomes. And, and let's face it, this path through um, the ballot initiative, it's not a short one. Mm -hmm. 
So, mm -hmm. so um, the, I mean, the goals here, I, I got to throw this in, Sophie, the goal, a 15% increase in graduation rates and increased reading and math proficiency by 50% for the groups identified in the lawsuit by 2025. And goals are important, but a lot really of education fast, advocates. Though, uh, that's right. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Really but you got to have something. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's important to have goals, but I think it is, it is equally important to have goals that are um, achievable within your grasp. And right. that that 50% in particular, woo, that is a fast timeline for that. Now, I am not an educator. I'm not working in, in that particular arena. I'm not mm -hmm. an expert in that arena. But but from outside, given the, the timeline, that feels really quick to me. We'll have to see where Merit's point stands on this too. A lot of folks are not crazy about ballot initiatives for big money, so we'll see what happens here. Thanks once again to Gene and the panel and everyone who contributed to the podcast this week, Laura, our guests. I thought we had some really informative conversations. If you didn't listen to Friday's episode of the podcast, the panel talked through how abortion could play into the governor's race come November, and they had a few other tidbits from the leading candidates that you might want to go back and listen to. If you like the podcast, check out our show, Friday Nights, that's New Mexico in Focus on New Mexico PBS. It's on at 7 o'clock. If that doesn't work for you, I know Friday nights are busy. We always repost it on our YouTube channel, so you can catch it there, too. Uh, this week, Laura is going to talk to New Mexico State Forester, Laura McCarthy. They're going to talk about fire season, climate change, and prescribed burns, and how they're all linked. Obviously, there's a lot of concern around the tactic of prescribed burns lately after the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fires, but the reality is those burns are one of the only tools that we have to keep massive fires from happening in the first place. So they're going to talk through that dilemma. Uh, you won't want to miss that conversation. That's going to be on the show Friday. If you can't watch it then, I'll catch you guys back up on the podcast later in the week. Don't worry about that. Anyway, thanks, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for July 18th, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Stay cool out there and have a great week.